God works through the worst. That's our series that we're going to be in for the next couple of weeks. And uh, last week we talked about how God worked even through, maybe you could argue the worst thing that's ever happened was Adam's sin. I mean, talk about consequences that affect kind of everybody. And so we looked at that and we looked at how God even worked through that. Today, I'm going to open your eyes to how not every part of this series is going to be focused on necessarily the worst of sin. Today, we're going to be looking at how God can even work through the worst in our suffering. And so that's kind of what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at some kind of famous, you might call, biblical characters, uh, people that you, if you're a Christian, you're going to kind of right away know, yeah, I know who that person is. And then even if you're not a Christian, maybe you're an atheist or agnostic or something like that, you've probably at least heard of some of these people before. So I'm not going to, to biblical characters that are like, you know, we got to kind of really hunt for them and try to find them. No, they're just kind of your, your normal main ones. We're actually going to bypass some kind of famous ones like Noah. I'm bypassing Noah. Uh, I just want to highlight that I'm even doing that. I'm going to also bypass uh, Abraham, which I really wrestled with that. But I thought, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Paul uh, Corabondi actually preached on Abraham. So I'm just like, you know, I'm just going to move past uh, Abraham. And then another would be like Isaac or Jacob or maybe like Joseph or one of the 12 sons or something like that. I'm going to actually bypass those and I'm going to go to a guy named Job. We know Job, a lot of us do. Um, and then we're going to kind of just look at this. So let me read a little, a little snippet of Job, even though my preaching isn't just this text, it's kind of the whole kit and caboodle of Job. Uh, so this is just to give you a taste, okay? So chapter 2 of Job, chapter 2, verses 1 through uh, 10, okay? So if you have your Bible, you can open up there. Uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, there's, I'm not just skipping chapter 1 because I don't want you to read it. No, I actually want you to go read Job this next week. I want you to go read through it on your own, and I want you to kind of give some thought to what God might be uh, saying to you in the midst of, uh, of Job. This is an incredible book of the Bible, incredible book of the Bible. In many ways, it's almost like a mini Bible, and I'm going to kind of share that in a little bit. It's almost like it's a mini Bible right in and of itself, okay? If you don't have a Bible and you need one, we have Bibles in the back back here. Those are free. Those are our gift to you. We want to make sure you have Bibles or the people that are close to you in your life have Bibles. So that's our gift to you. Job chapter 2, here it is. Again, so that right off the bat signals that this has already kind of happened one other time. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan, the Hebrew there is really probably better, the accuser. So the accuser, or Satan, also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, or the accuser, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to the accuser, Have you considered my servant Job? 
There's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. He still holds fast his integrity, although you've incited me against him to destroy him without reason. This is in chapter 1. You've got to go read that. Then the accuser answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. So the accuser went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. He took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then, this is amazing, then his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God? Shall we not receive evil or, or uh, disaster? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. And then just, just to get right after it a little bit, just Matthew 26, Jesus saying uh, something like, Deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. Let's pray, and then I'm going to try to unpack this a little bit, okay? Lord, this message is always a bit of a challenge, but especially today, just knowing where some people in this room are, there's some real suffering going on. Uh, There's folks in here that have, this past year, lost loved ones. Uh, There's people in this room who are struggling uh, with loss even this week. We know that there's those who are sick with cancer and other diseases that are dying. We know there's people with chronic pain who, are, who are, have pain in their body that just doesn't go away. The deterioration of our bodies, many of us are experiencing and feeling. Lord, as, as we experience some of those sufferings, it's, it's not even to mention the kinds of sufferings like not having enough finances or, um, or uh, broken relationships that now we have to work through and, and try to figure out. And who knows what else might be represented in the rube. There's lots of suffering. And so, Lord, as we deal with this today, I pray that you would open our hearts to what you want to tell us in the midst of our suffering. Say to us what we need to hear. And God, I believe that I'm going to open my mouth for a little bit here and I'm going to say some stuff. But I also know that what's really needed is your spirit to blow over us, to to penetrate our hearts, not just the eardrum, not to just get that little bone in our ear moving, but to get the little tremors of our heart going. Stir us up, God. Stir us up to the things you'd have us hear in the midst of our suffering. Please do that, God. I beg of you to do that. If you don't show up, we're screwed and we've wasted our time listening to Seth. We need you to show up and speak now. I pray this boldly in Jesus' name. Amen. So the story of Job. Uh, 
Job lives, if you look at chapter one, if you have your Bible, this is where it's always helpful. Chapter one, he's in the land of Uz, or Uzi. <laughs> Uzi, Uz. That sounds like the name of like maybe our next kid, babe. Uz. Uz. We got, you know, we got some different names for kids. Our, our, our five kids have a little bit of different names. And I was reading Uz, I was like, man, that could work. That could work for a, for a Kunzi kid in the future. He's from the land of Uz, from the book in the Bible called Lament, uh, Lamentations, yeah, from the book in the Bible called Lamentations, I think it's chapter four, and then a spot in Jeremiah, it connects Uz to Edom. Uh, so you remember when I was preaching through the prophets, I talked for one Sunday especially, I talked about the Edomites, which is kind of this southeastern, like southeast of Jerusalem area of Israel, this land of Edom, it, appears, it seems like Uz is in that area. Um, Job, we learn early on, we didn't read this, you'll read this this next week, but Job is a follower of God, and so he's, he's a guy who believes in God, and is, he's, 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 he lives in the fear of the Lord, and he's living a, an upright, righteous life before God. And so Job's a... Job's kind of a, a stud follower of God. Um, Job is, is um, uh, probably, probably as, as best a guess as I could give you, probably living around the 18th to the 15th century BC. Now, different theologians and stuff kind of argue this and talk about it in different ways. The reason I'm convinced of this is, again, it's just kind of, looking at it and trying to figure it out. Um, I like the fact that Job's three friends that show up in chapter two, uh, two of them give us their, their, their kind of ancestry connected back to some, some of um, the descendants that you can kind of go read about in Genesis. And so it appears like, it appears like uh, Job is living at a time when the temple isn't around. Uh, he's living at the age of some of the other fathers like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's living to that kind of older age at that time period. It, it, it seems like he's living around 18th to the, to the 15th century BC, which would put him in the land of probably Edom. He's probably an Edomite, quite honestly, living in the land of Edom uh, around the time the Israelites are in Egypt. None of this matters if, it, if I'd be off by a couple hundred centuries or something. It's okay. But that's just my best kind of guess as I kind of put it all together and as I'm kind of looking at commentaries. 18th to 15th century BC, living in the land of Edom, probably around the time that the Israelites are actually in Egypt, um, you know, in their 400 years of slavery kind of thing. Okay. This is kind of interesting. And it seems like Job is living this kind of great life. He's got a lot of stuff. And then all of a sudden, chapter one happens and boom, things go from good to bad to ugly to worse. I mean, in, in, in like fast, right? And then it even starts to affect his very body. And so he gets all these sores all over and Job starts to really suffer. He loses his children. He loses his, all of his like financial resources of sheep and goats and all that kind of stuff. He's, all this is taken from him and Job enters into this period of incredible suffering. And what I want to ask today is something kind of like this. 
can God work through that suffering? And will Job learn what it means to serve God even in the midst of suffering? And so there's really three key learnings that I, I'm kind of seeing pop for me this past week as I'm looking at Job. Three learnings that Job learned that I think we can kind of learn. Here's the three learnings. And then this is going to be my sermon today. One of the learnings is simply that suffering can't always be understood. You can't always understand suffering. So that's one, one, one uh, learning. A second learning is that sometimes the end can actually be better than the beginning after suffering. So that's a learning that, that's going to come about. And then the last learning is something like this, that God is worthy to be served just like because, because he's enough. By himself, he is enough. And that's going to be kind of another learning. So let's just dive into this first one. This first one is we can't always understand suffering. Why did they die? Man, they were so young. Why did they die? They were so young. Um, why, do they, why do they have that sickness? They're, they were so healthy. I, they, they always went to the gym. They seemed like they were always eating good. You know, they've been smoking cigarettes for 150 years and drinking Dr. Pepper, you know, 15 a day, and they're still kicking. And this guy, he's been at the gym every day, and he's got the cancer, and, you know, what the heck? Um, why, why, why are, are some of these things happening? And quite honestly, sometimes we just don't know. You know, we don't even think of this one. I try to think about this as much as I can, but why are some Christians living in areas where they're persecuted? They're, they're in jail for just being a Christian. Why? Why them? You know, that, that doesn't even register with our brains because, you know, we don't, we're like, I don't know anybody in jail because of their faith. Well, it's happening all over the world. You know, I mean, incredible suffering going on. And so why is this? And we wonder about that sometimes. And we start, to, we start to kind of try to answer that question, I think, often, don't we? We try to, you know, is, did I do something wrong? Did they do something wrong? Did they not do something they were supposed to do? Is God not paying attention? Is God the cause of these things? Is what, what's going on? And we, we kind of start to deal with trying to figure it all out when maybe the best thing we could do is just stop and just recognize, I don't understand it all. It's interesting, Job doesn't understand it. You know, Job's three friends come along in chapter two and most of the book of Job is these three friends talking and giving their advice. And the, the primary advice they're giving is something like this. Job, you must have done something wrong. Something, you, you, something must be amiss. You must have made some mistake for this to be happening to you. So repent and say you're sorry and turn to God. And Job's like... I didn't do anything wrong. Like, 
Job acknowledges he's a sinner and he's, he's made mistakes, but he's like, I can't make the move. You guys are telling me that I've done something explicitly wrong that this is coming to me. And that's, that's these three friends, that's their argument. You must have done something wrong or, or something must be amiss. And we do this too. We're like, what did they maybe, you know, what did they maybe do? Why is God maybe punishing them? You remember the story, I think it's John chapter 9 or something like that, where Jesus heals the, the, the blind man. And what, is it? what happens, right? The disciples, they start to go to seminary, and they start to theologize. Jesus, who sinned? This man, or someone he knows, maybe his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus is like, you guys are dumb. You guys are asking the wrong questions. This, wasn't, this guy wasn't, nobody did anything wrong for this man to be born blind. It was simply so that the, the, the works of God could be, uh, that God would receive glory in this and something amazing could happen. That's it. Go read that, John chapter 9. The disciples, they're th- theologizing. What, do, what went wrong? What did they do wrong? And we, we do this. We wonder why so much bad things happen. It's interesting, Job, now it depends on if you think Job wrote the book of Job or not. I tend to think he did write Job. Some, some would argue, um, even kind of in the past, like Jewish folks and stuff would say Moses maybe wrote it or something. Fine, whatever. But at least in the story itself, Job never hears about the, 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 the backstory of what's happening between the accuser and God. Job never knows about that from the story itself. He never, he never is aware that God and the enemy are doing this, this conversation in heaven and God is giving an allowance of what is to happen. Job is just experiencing in the material what he's experiencing. But he doesn't know what's going on. Like you and I, we read it and we're like, oh, okay, I can see kind of what's going on. He doesn't know. And sometimes we just don't know. One of the best things the three friends do, uh, they do a lot wrong, quite honestly, and you can go see this as God rebukes them at the end of Job. Maybe one of the things they do right is on the first, uh, in the first part of their connecting with Job, they just sit with him for seven days and they don't say anything. And it's actually when they start talking that they screw everything up. Sometimes you just need to sit in the suffering. I've preached that multiple times. And you don't have to say anything. You just need to be there. Maybe they get that right. And as soon as they start talking, it starts to go south really fast. One of the first things that Job learns is that we can't always understand suffering. Sometimes it's happening and you just don't know the answer to it. You just don't know why. Stop trying to figure it all out. Stop saying, well, maybe it's this, maybe it's maybe you just don't know. Anybody ever been in that spot? Yeah, amen. We just don't know why it's happening. 
that's one of the first learnings. Second learning, and this is kind of what I want to spend a little more time on, is this. The end can be better than the beginning after the suffering. The end can actually be better than the beginning after the suffering. I, I, we brought in this little, uh, these mum flowers. And you know, when you think of a flower, what's got to happen for a flower to come about, right? There's going to be a little seed, and then that little seed has to actually go into the ground. It has to be buried, and then it dies so it can crack open so that it can start to put roots down and shoots down. I don't really understand all this. I'm kind of thinking this is common sense. So if I'm saying something wrong, I apologize. But I think this is right. That then it shoots the little roots down. And then it starts growing so that it can be these beautiful flowers. Right? Is that how it happens? I think so. So the seed has to go into the ground and die. In order for the seed to become this, it's got to go through something that I would guess if you could have the seed talk to you, it's not going to be like, oh, that's a cool experience. Because it goes into the ground. It's got to get covered and buried and suffocate and die in order for it to come up and be these beautiful, kind of like flower-like things, right? Sometimes the end can actually be better than the beginning. So my question is something like this. Could there be a purpose in suffering? Now, we got to be really careful because this isn't what you lead with when you find out your friend has cancer. That's not, that's not the way you lead. Oh, let me tell you how this could be a good thing. No, now you've moved back. Now you've moved back to kind of learning number one. Maybe you just don't know. I've shared this before. When we had our miscarriage years ago, I was amazed at how stupid, good Christian people, uh, the stupid stuff they said to us. I was amazed. I know I've said stupid stuff to people before as I'm theologizing and thinking biblically about things and, oh, let me tell you in your suffering. Well, sometimes just shush kind of thing. I know I've made that mistake too. But could there be a purpose? Could there be a purpose in suffering? Could there actually be higher joy, more peace? Could there even be a deeper sense of truth and reality after suffering? I want to talk just for a second about, um, about different cultures' understanding of suffering. You know, our culture is a, a, a secular culture. It's a very materialistic culture. We, we, we only believe what we can taste and touch and feel as a culture. Well, a lot of cultures that have either been before us or even in some parts of the world today, think of some of this very different. Reality or that which is real or that which could even give you your sense of ultimate identity or worth is actually maybe something outside of this world. And so for a lot of cultures throughout time, suffering wasn't always seen as this necessarily terrible thing, but instead suffering was seen as maybe a way to have the material aspects of our life kind of die or get pushed down so that we might come up to some higher reality or higher sense of identity or worth. 
See, our culture, now you got to stick with me here. If you're a thinker, this is for you. Our culture today is, is, is materialistic in its thinking. It's, it's the only the material is what we can kind of prove. And, and this is what is real. My feelings, um, maybe it's money or power or prestige. Maybe it's um, relationships like the people that are around me. But these material things are where we get our ultimate sense of identity or worth. While suffering, when we suffer, we suffer, we suffer the material, the loss of. And so follow me on this. What that means is that suffering isn't helping you become something greater or give you some truth. Suffering is actually going after your very identity. It's coming after who you are. And so our culture today is like there can be no purpose in suffering because it's taking away my identity. What could this look like? Well, it could look like a lot of different things. Let's just take a really simple one, okay? Because there could even be different levels of suffering here. I know I'm deep. I'm going to come out of the depths in just a second. But, but just take a simple one like if you're... Your identity is your car, okay? You have the coolest car, you have the nice brand new truck or something, and that has become your identity, which I know people like this. If they were to have their truck taken away, it would actually affect who they are. So let's just pretend you've made that part of your identity. Now, when the car hits you in the parking lot at Walmart, it's not just hitting your car, it's hitting your identity, and you begin to suffer something much deeper. And so there could be no good purpose in that happening. That's who I am. Or this could be somebody who's, who's who, you know, their second amendment right is so who they are. And it's all that they have. And I'm a second amendment guy. I'm not saying... But it's all that they are. It's the thing that they hold on to. And so if you take that away, you're taking away my identity. What could it look like to be called to suffer something like um, maybe you struggle with a particular sin. Maybe you struggle with the sin of same-sex attraction. Follow me here on this. See, our culture teaches you those feelings are real, and, and they are, but our culture says that's all you have. That's your identity. So when the word of God comes and says, okay, it might be a real feeling, that's true, but when God might say, okay, now I'm going to call you to suffer, follow me on this, suffer what it means to say, I'm going to, struggle with this through my life and I'm going to suffer what it looks like to say no to my desires and my feelings and so I may be called to suffer this. Could there be even a purpose in that? Now, if you didn't follow me on that and you're confused, that's fine, but that's massive actually. See, aren't we know so little about suffering? Oh my gosh, we know so little. Go study. Go study Christians that have been have watched their kids burn at the stake. 
Go study what it looks like for Christians today who are in jail for 10 years, two decades, just because they follow Jesus. So you might have an inner desire of some kind, and it's a real thing. I'm not saying it's not real. You might have an inner desire to do something or feel something. And our culture says, follow that, make that your identity. When God's word might say something like, no, you can't do that. And I know that that's going to be really hard for you, so you may be called to suffer it. You might be called to suffer it. We have to come around our brothers and sisters in Christ who are being called to a cross that is very difficult. Some of the crosses that you in this room are called to carry are very, very difficult crosses to carry. We're to walk with each other in that. Could there be a purpose even in that suffering? See, the biblical worldview says something like this. Watch this. See, the biblical worldview holds to a materialistic world. God creates the world. It's good. But he also has stuff like, he doesn't say, he doesn't say something like, okay, when bad things happen, then I'm going to just wipe it out and start over. Instead, he says, I'm going to come and redeem and restore. And he comes to the cross, doesn't he? What is that? So that means there's restoration of even, even the material. And then the biblical worldview puts things out like resurrection. Don't miss how important that is. Resurrection. It, it, it gives us things like eternal life. It gives us things like new heavens, new earth. It gives us things like God working in all things and through all things for the good of those who love him. Working through it, in it, for the good of those who love him. Romans chapter 8. Redemption, restoration. Uh, I want to share this with you. This book, I've, I've quoted it before, Tim Keller, The Reason for God. He has a chapter in here. Uh, he has a chapter called, How Could a Good God Allow Suffering? And I just want to read you a little excerpt and then something that he, he quotes as well. He says this, The doctrine of the resurrection can instill us with a powerful hope. It promises that we will get the life we most long for, but it will be an infinitely more glorious world than if there had never been the need for bravery, endurance, sacrifice or salvation. C.S. Lewis, he then quotes on the next page in his book, The Great Divorce, says this. They, those maybe from a secular cultural kind of worldview, they say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, and then C.S. Lewis, like he brilliantly does, he moves into the creative side here. I love this. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will actually work backwards. And turn even that agony into a glory. Holy smokes. Could there be a purpose in suffering? Could there be 
a purpose in suffering. Job himself, as you read through Job, Job, when he, he shares, he, he holds, because he doesn't know the backstory. He doesn't know what the heck is going on. God's not giving him play by play by play. And so Job is just sitting there like, what in the world? And Job, you get glimpses of his faith. And one of the most remarkable moments in Job is from Job chapter 19. Listen to what it says, Job chapter 19. This is where that incredible hymn, which is actually going to be spoke, uh, sung at my funeral. I want this, this, this is one of the hymns at my funeral that I want. Job chapter 19. For I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. That is an incredible picture of hope. Now remember, he doesn't see it and know it, but he believes it to be true. There must be a redeemer. I need a redeemer. And not only a redeemer that will just kind of float me out of here, but a redeemer of even the fleshly. One day I will see him with my eyes. Yeah. That's the biblical worldview of where suffering is heading. It's going somewhere. What's our hope? I know that my Redeemer lives. See, that's it. The Easter hymn. That's our hope. And then Job, notice at the end of Job, he's doubly blessed. Job has more kids. He has 10 more kids. He has double the amount of sheep, double the goats, double the everything. He's doubly blessed at the end. Now, this isn't what you lead with when your, per, the, your friend gets cancer. That's not where you start. It's what ends up getting experienced by Job. And as we look to the biblical worldview, as we look to God's word, it seems like we can say, and I want to say this precisely, so I'm just, I, but I'm just going to say it. I'm going to say it like this. It appears like as you read the Bible, this is where, how it's working out for us too. It's, it's moving, we know for sure, towards new heavens, new earth. I don't want to say this is the reason or purpose of suffering or something like that. Even I don't, I don't want to quite go there because I want to stay in the world of, I don't know. I want when you say to me, I found out I have cancer. I want to be, and you say, why do I have cancer? And I, I don't know. I want to answer like that. And yet, as we look at God's word, it's moving towards what appears like something better I'm going to use the word because we've gone through the suffering. And it seems like there's that connection. You know, uh, Reed Lessing in his commentary, he says this of the book of Job connected to a biblical worldview. Listen to what he says. He says this, the book of Job is a microcosm of the biblical narrative. Both begin in an idyllic way. They testify to a diabol diabolical intrusion, describe a fall of unfathomable proportions, announce God's intervention, which is very key, and then it pictures an ending that is much like the beginning, only greater. 
Are you following that? Don't let diabolical and stuff, don't, don't get hung up on that. <clears throat> it pictures an end at the, begin, at the end that's like the beginning, but it's only better. Could this be some of the purpose behind our suffering? Not to justify suffering. Not to say, you can't call suffering good. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying, could there be a purpose? Could there be something, could there be flowers? Could there be flowers in mind as the seed goes into the ground to die? Could there be flowers in mind? Could God really be working things all for the good of those who love him? Could there be, could there be, now, now I'm just, let me just talk to me personally. Could there be like having lost our little baby, could there be something that eternally is now even better and greater? You know, could there be something that God is doing that's even better than I can imagine? Now this, it's just hard because there's people in here who've been maybe raped or there's genocides in the world. I mean, we can only imagine the kinds of atrocities that are out there. Child trafficking that's here in Houston. Uh, and I mean, just a terrible, terrible things. Terrible, terrible things. And it's not to, to kind of be like, oh, but it's gonna, but look at the flowers. No, that's not what I'm trying to do. There's some terrible things that have taken place. The only thing I can do in some of those kinds of moments is point you to something that has happened that's even worse. I don't know how God's going to work it all out in your situation of the incredible thing that that person did to you. I don't know how God's going to work in that. I don't claim to know. I don't get it all. What I can point you to is something we can kind of see unfold because it's already happened. And the worst thing that's ever taken place is that mankind took the Son of God, put him on a cross, and killed him. It's the worst thing we've ever done. We, not dropping atomic bombs doesn't come close to that. Nothing comes close. We took our creator and put him on a cross and we killed him. And the, and the biblical narrative would say, not only did that happen, but Jesus himself actually began to suffer our sin. He suffered the abandonment of God. I don't get exactly how that all works. But he, he suffered the abandonment of God while at the same time suffering the full wrath of God poured out on him. Just the thought of this in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he's betrayed, just the thought of this moves Jesus to a place of shock as he's just, his, just thinking about what he's going to have to go through. Puts Jesus into this shock and would prefer not to go through this. Father, if there's any other way. And yet the father is silent, right? And he, this is the way. This is the only way forward. 
the worst thing that's ever taken place. And in, follow this, in that worst thing that's ever taken place, it's in that moment that God saves the world. Think about that. Can God work through the worst? Yes, and the cross is proof of it. That's what we point to. If somebody says, can God work through the worst? The best thing I can do is point to the cross and say, yeah. He literally worked through the worst and in that worst saved all of mankind. He saved you. He saved me. Can God work through the worst? I don't, I don't want to try to explain away your terrible situation you've gone through. And some things in here that have, been ha- that have happened to you is, is atrocious and terrible. And I don't want to try to explain that away. No, but I can point you to the cross where God worked the most amazing thing through the worst thing. And lastly, and this is just going to be a shorter one, Job learns to serve God just because God is enough. Even Job will end up at the end, it depends on how you kind of read it, but even Job appears to kind of go a little too far in his thinking of God as being unjust. God, are you, is this fair? I mean, I'm, I've been pretty good. I've done it pretty right. I mean, I, I'm righteous. I didn't even do anything wrong. And God shows up in an incredible way. You can go read chapters, whatever it is, 38, 39. God comes and speaks to Job and he says some stuff. And Job, at the end of that speech from God, says, I'm going to sit down back in the dust and I'm going to sit here and I'm going to repent. And what Job begins to realize is that God himself is enough. It doesn't matter what life you are given, which crosses you're called to carry. Some are going to be harder than others. Some of you are carrying way harder crosses than I'll ever have to carry, at least that I know of. Some of you are carrying some incredibly difficult crosses. And yet, one of the learnings from Job is that God himself is enough. If his life is good and he gets the truck, God is enough. If life is bad and his truck gets hit and it's brand new pulling out of the, God is enough. If, 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 if you go through incredible suffering and death after death after death happens in your life and it doesn't happen to your neighbor who's a Christian too, but you're, you're called to that cross and they're not called to that cross, God is enough. God is enough. And Job learns this. See, Job realizes that Job doesn't have a claim on God. But that God has a claim on Job. And so even the end of Job, and I'd push on this a little bit, even the end of Job when God gives him doubly all of his stuff and blesses him like crazy again, even that we shouldn't necessarily go too quickly to, well, God did that because Job was faithful. No, no, no. The end happens the way the end happens because God is gracious and God is merciful 
And God chooses to do that for Job. That's it. Job starts with grace and it ends with grace. He lives by grace. That's it. Until the day he will see God with his own two eyes. And he believes that to be true. And that's true for you and me today. That's true for you and me today. My prayer is that this message on suffering would help us to think about the reality we can't always understand suffering. We can't always explain it away. My prayer is that you would realize that the biblical worldview presents a picture where the end is even better than the beginning. And my prayer is that today you would walk away knowing that God, just being God, is enough. He's enough. Whether your life is crappy, whether your life is great, whether your life is up, middle, mid, wherever it is, He is enough. And He loves you like crazy. And he, wor- he will work all things for the good of those who love Him. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank You for this message in Job that teaches us some of the things that You taught to Job without us having to maybe go through what Job went through. Now, some people in here, Lord, have maybe gone through even worse than what Job went through. And um, they can relate immediately and jump right into it. Lord, I don't, I hope nobody has to go through that kind of suffering. I even would, I even today would pray for our church family that they wouldn't have to go through that suffering, Lord. I pray against where where there's evil in this world and how the enemy attacks. And I pray protection over our church family. I pray for protection, Lord, um, that you would guard us and watch over us and keep us. Lord, if you do call us to suffer and to carry our crosses where you do that, I pray for strength to hold fast to you and never let go. I pray for our church family, God, that where they're being called to suffer today, that they wouldn't let go of you. You are with them. You are with them. And God, there's people in this room that are are called to carry some heavy-looking crosses. And it is hard. And it is not easy. And it could be all sorts of different kinds of ways in which they're suffering. And I just pray for strength for them, for endurance. God, thank you. I... Not to wish it, not to make sense of it even, but I thank you for the hope and the resurrection that we have. I thank you for your death on the cross that saved us. I thank you for the ways in which you have shown how you do work in suffering. And so today, that person who's going through the hardest of things, Lord, give them a picture of the future that is good and even better than the beginning. Show them that, Lord. Give them little glimpses of that. We thank you. You do do that with your word. And then give them the strength to hold on to you, Jesus, by faith. To never let go. Thank you that you never let go of us, Lord. You never let go of Job. You, you even gave the enemy only, only barriers. Only He could only go so far. And so even today, Lord, over our people, over our church family, I thank you that you are in complete control and you'll only let things go so far. 
there will come a day when we are part of the end that's even better than the beginning. And, and in some weird way, it'll be connected to our suffering. I'm just amazed by that, Lord. I look forward to that. We love you, Lord, and we trust in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.